Good morning. Welcome back to those of you who have been traveling. Uh, good to see new faces as well. So if you're new with us, or this is your first few times, or if you know who I am, my name's Tim. I'm the pastor here in charge of Smack One. Uh, and yeah, I'll be preaching today from continuing our series from Matthew 11 uh, that we just read just now. So we're going through Matthew, a series in Matthew right now. So before we begin, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have already promised us true life, true prosperity, true peace in you and you alone. We thank you that in Christ you have saved us, you've redeemed us, and that we can be your children. So help us, O oh Lord, right now to be listening to you, your words rightly, so that we may live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, for, for, if you're new again, uh, there's a code up there. If you want to use your browser on your phone or your smart devices that's connected to the internet, go to menti.com and enter that eight-digit code at the end. Uh, some slides will have it, some slides won't, but on most slides, uh, then you can ask your questions there, and then we have a Q&A at the end of the service, okay? So I titled my sermon today, Are You the One to Come? Because that's a question asked of Jesus, and that's the primary feature of our text today. But I want to start one step back by thinking about this. Yeah, about disappointment. Disappointment occurs. How do we deal with disappointment? Disappointment occurs when reality falls short of our expectations. Now, this could be trivial expectations uh, that when unmet lead to very trivial disappointments. Uh, like for my children, uh, when I, uh, after church, we sometimes go to McDonald's and they want McDonald's ice cream. Uh, they expect ice cream only to meet with the reality that the ice cream machine is broken once again. It's trivial. I mean, not trivial to them, but you know. Yeah, it's trivial. But there are also more um, serious life expectations, isn't there? that when unmet lead to more uh, life-altering consequences, the expectations that we will always have our jobs, they're secure. The expectations that our bodies aren't hiding some sort of uh, terminal diagnosis or health problem. The expectation that our loved ones will always be with us. Or the expectation that our trust in others will, will not be betrayed. And these, when unmet, have far more uh, life-shattering consequences. But I would say that these expectations are not the most important expectation to have. The most vital expectation to have links in with the question today, which is, who is Jesus Christ? How, the, 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 word, the name Jesus means God saves. How does God save? How do we have expectations towards that, towards God's saving act? Because if the expectation to that question is wrong, the consequences can be eternal. Now, back in Jesus' day, there was expectations on the Christ, which means Messiah, the one to come, the one promised by the, the thousands of years of Old Testament scriptures, the one who would come and bring God's salvation. So what were those expectations? So 2,000 years ago in Jesus' day, they were under Roman occupation. So obviously, these pagan Romans, the, the expectation was for a political revolution, that God's king would come and reign. And, and some were saying, it's been so long. Maybe God wasn't talking about the Romans. Maybe God's talking about a more spiritual revival where God, the hearts of God's people are turned to Him. That's what the prophets say, didn't it? And like most things, like even today, when there's a, a, a very controversial debate, most people in general, the general population, was somewhere in between. A bit of both. And today we'll explore this, how these expectations on the Christ that when unmet led to disappointment and if unmanaged well, lead to doubt. And we see this in the person of John the Baptist. 
So let's dive into our passage today, looking at verse 1 itself. Now, verse 1 sets the stage for us. In the past few weeks, we've been looking at Matthew chapter 10, okay? For the past few weeks, we saw how Jesus sent out his disciples in pairs. He prepared them for their mission to Israel. And we saw how that had implications for our mission in life today in the world. They were to expect persecution. They were sent out as sheep among wolves. They were to expect persecution, expect division as they serve as ambassadors of Jesus Christ himself, as they proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And we likewise were encouraged to expect uh, in our mission that not everything will go smoothly, but we still go because of the one who have called us. So our passage today lands us where Matthew transitions from the expectations of the mission to the reality of the responses to his mission, to Jesus' ministry. And of course, these responses are based on people's uh, wrong expectations as well. But we begin with John, as we said. Okay? So that's chapter 1 to set the state. After Jesus instructed his disciples, he went on to teach and preach. So that's our setting next. Now, this is my sermon for today. It's mainly in two parts. Again, the first thing, who is Jesus? Oops, sorry. Technical error. Okay, I'll hope. Yep. Okay. Okay, there we go. The first part is, who is Jesus? John's question, who is Jesus? And the second part, Jesus saying, who is John? Who John is, but how who John is reveals the answer to the question, really. So let's, let's dive in, okay? Made two main parts, and the main idea for us is that, who is Jesus? Jesus is God who has come to save us as promised, okay? So let's go to verse 2. So we read here, first and foremost, John in prison. He hears about the deeds of Christ and he asks, are you the one who is to come? And this is a loaded question. Because are you the one to come? He's asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? Have we got it wrong? Are you really the Christ? Or are you just another forerunner like me? Have I got it wrong this whole time? And this is puzzling because earlier in Matthew chapter 3, if you, look, if you scroll back earlier in Matthew chapter 3, John recognized Jesus' greatness. He refused to baptize Jesus. Right? He almost refused to baptize Jesus. And in that, he, indeed, he saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove at his baptism. And from John's gospel, we know that that was a sign the Holy Spirit gave John, that the one whom you see the Holy Spirit descend, that person is the Christ. So John knew. He had special revelation. He knew what happened. And we read here, when he heard the deeds of Christ. He heard what Christ was doing. And what, what was it that Christ did that made John so unsure, this great prophet? We will see next week what uh, the reports of Christ's uh, acts, that he was partying, that he was drinking and eating with tax collectors and sinners. And also, not just what he was doing, but what he was not doing. And that is, he was not judging Rome. He was not freeing John from a Roman prison. Because John was, was put in prison, as you see, because he was boldly uh, calling out the corruption and, and infidelity of a public king, Herod, put there by Rome. And he called it out. Herod didn't like it. He put him in prison. And, and, and John is in prison saying, what's going on, Jesus? Where's this judgment that I've promised? So I'll, I'll pull up Matthew chapter 3. And what did John preach about Jesus? John, this is John speaking. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me, the Messiah, right, is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. 
He will clear the threshing floor, gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That the Christ will come and judge. He will burn that which does not belong to him, the chaff. Things of this world, he will burn. But the wheat, those who are faithful, will be gathered to the barn. And John was expecting this. Now before we go on, I'd just like to make a comment here. Now if it's possible for a great prophet like John, and we will see how great he is in the later part of our passage. If it's great... Uh, is it possible, possible for someone like John to doubt Jesus? What more us? When life doesn't play out the way that we expect it to, it's very natural for doubts and questions to come in. Why would God allow this to happen to me? Why hasn't God done something about my situation yet? God, have I not been faithful to you? God, do you even care? God, are you, even, are you there? Are you listening to me? Do you hear me? And these are real weighty questions that in the moment of hurt and disappointment, it's natural and it's okay to be asking those questions if that is you today. If you're facing a time of doubt and struggle, it's okay. It's okay. But we need to be doing what John did. That is to bring those questions and doubts to Jesus. And we're not meant to stew on our own in that prison of our own making, but rather we are to come to Jesus and bring our doubts and concerns to Him. And let's look at Jesus' response to John next. So what's Jesus' answer? He lists a few things. The blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, they're healed, the dead is raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. What was Jesus saying here? It seems as if, Jesus, I'm answering you, asking you a question, you're answering me with another question. What's He doing here? Here, Jesus is actually pointing John to the Old Testament. Because all these are signs predicted in the Old Testament that we'll see later. Now, many times, the answers to our questions and our doubts are already in Scripture. God has already revealed them, already laid it out in His Word for us, but we don't see it. Maybe because we were expecting something and a different answer in our mind, so we miss the answer that God wants to give us. So Jesus draws heavily from two passages in Isaiah, which I will refer to next. The first is in Isaiah 35, verse 4 to 6. So here we have eyes of the blind, ears of the deaf, and the lame leap like deer. But what's not mentioned by Jesus here? In verse 4, vengeance and recompense. In essence, Jesus doesn't say that. He says the later part of the verse, expecting that John knows the, quote, the full quotation, but he doesn't say that he will come with the vengeance and recompense of God. And the next, so you see not everything is listed here. What other passages is Jesus pointing to? Again, in Isaiah, further on in 61, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted. And again, what's missing here is to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, because the time is not right yet. Jesus is speaking to John, and he's saying in a coded way, uh, how can we expect this? Three things. Jesus is telling John, number one, yes, I am the one who is to come. You were not wrong to believe in me. I am the Christ. Number two, the Christ has come to save the world. Okay? I have come to save and undo the acts of sin. But no, my salvation is not what you expect it to be. And that's Jesus' answer to John. That's why he ends with this verse here. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus is telling his cousin, John, here, blessed are you if you're not stumbled by your wrongful expectations 
of me. Believe in me. You are right to trust in me. Take your eyes off your expectations of what you want and to see what God has already been doing, what God is already doing in fulfilling his promises, the promises that have already been fulfilled. And that's what Jesus says to John. And that leads us to our first principle here, and that Jesus is the promised Savior. But how do we understand that for us today? We look at the passage, uh, we, we, the blind, the lame, the lepers, uh, the deaf are healed, the dead are raised. But we look around today, how are we to understand that today? There's members of our church who are blind, those who still need wheelchairs and walkers and, 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 and crutches. There's deaf in our congregation that's not healed yet. My own daughter, she's not healed yet. She's still deaf. So what is God doing? What is He saving? If we're looking for that, that's the wrong expectation. The reality then, what's the reality? The reality is that we do not need a change in our circumstances in this life. The reality is that our, the greatest need is not for health, for prosperity, for happiness, for our jobs to go well, for our families to be happy and well, for stuff, for more stuff. Our greatest need is for God himself. That the Bible tells us that God is abounding in life and in love and in goodness, that nothing on earth can satisfy us. Nothing on earth can compare to God because we were made, brothers and sisters, friends, we were made to be satisfied by nothing less than the infinite God. Hence, things that are finite on this earth will never compare, can never satisfy us. So our greatest problem then, if, if our greatest need is God, our greatest problem is that which separates us from God. And the Bible says that's sin. So one way I can describe sin is, is our rejection of God. It's saying to God, God, I don't want you. I don't need you. I don't want you in my life. I just want the stuff you give me. I just want you to bless me. I don't want anything to do with you. So God, please leave my career choices alone. Please leave my spending habits alone. Please don't tell me how I should be caring or spending my time or my, my me time or my family time. God, stay in your lane on a Sunday morning in church where I put you nicely. Stay there, God. Don't touch the rest of my life. And sin is so disappointing because it robs us of God himself, the best that God wants to give us himself. And in turn, it replaces us with something that won't last, that's pathetic by comparison. And sin is evil because it doesn't just disappoint you, it kills you. To be cut off from the source of life, eternal life, it only leaves you to eternal death. And it's so evil that its consequences is rightly to be destroyed. And all who are in it. That God hates sin. He hates what it does. He will destroy sin and everyone who is in it. So God is not concerned about saving us from temporary earthly problems. God is instead interested in saving us from our eternal sin problem. So from the very first moment sin entered into humanity, God set in motion His promise to, to save the world. A promise that's been developed over the pages, over thousands of years, in the promised one to come. And that is Jesus. That He has come to save us from our sin so that we can be brought into God's kingdom. And that was what John's ministry was all about. And that's what we will see in our next verses together. In answering, uh, in teaching about who John is, Jesus actually reveals to us what we should be thinking about his kingdom and what he has come to do. So, 
John's messengers, received the answer from Jesus, went away uh, to bring the message back to John. And now Jesus used this opportunity to speak to the crowds that was there. Likely, many of them baptized by John, hearing John's ministry. To what, what really was John's ministry about? Because he goes out, what do you go to the wilderness to see? These were crowds who went to flock to see John, isn't it? The first prophet in hundreds of years. So what did they go to see? And here, let me explain. He just uses two images uh, to, to put as ridiculous examples of what John is not. Okay? So the first example is a reed. A reed is uh, a grass by the river that just sways with the breeze. And this means like someone who, who vacillates, who, who flip-flops in Jesus' day, to flip-flop between the authority of Rome to the authority of the Jewish leaders. He does, has no standing, and that's not John. John called out soldiers and tax collectors alike. He called out kings for their corruption. He stood firm. And the second image was that of a man in soft clothing, or fine clothes, really. And John was no lover of this life. He wore coarse camel hair. He ate locusts with honey in the wilderness to show that he did not take part in the pleasures of this earth. John was not about political gain. So John was absolutely none of these things. It was rhetorical. It's absolutely not. So what did they go to see? And Jesus says, a prophet. Yes, but more than a prophet. John is a prophet who fulfills prophecy. What prophecy? Let's look at Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger. And that's John. John was the messenger. He prepared the way before me. Now, the key thing here is this. It's not just the messenger, but who is speaking? Who is speaking here? The Lord of hosts. Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of heaven armies. The conquering God who, 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 yeah, who has hosts host of angels, heavenly hosts behind him. And that, Jesus is saying, is me. John is my messenger. John was preparing the way for me. So don't miss this. John's ministry was about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Lord of hosts that is coming in. And this is the kingdom that he's inaugurating. And that's how we understand the next verse in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now this verse is not about dismissing John. Okay? It's not about belittling or humiliating John. Absolutely not. But how should we understand this verse? It's rather about the, the surpassing nature of the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. That what, what kind of kingdom is this? That even the least in this new kingdom is greater than the greatest prophet ever produced on earth. Because, and we can know this, how can we make sense of this? Because those who are in this kingdom are in this kingdom because they have faith in Christ. They've put their faith in Christ. They have been united with Him. So what did Christ come to do? He came to be as we are. He, the, the eternal Son of God became fully human. So that when He, as we sung earlier today, as He died on the cross, though innocent, He died a sinner's death, executed on the cross. The death our sins required was united with Him. The Bible says when we put our faith in Him, we've been united with Him so fully that what He paid for was for our sins. Being united to Him, the sins that were so disgusting, so evil, was tied to the cross and fully paid for in punishment. That Jesus didn't stay dead. That He rose again in resurrection power and we too are raised with Him. That we become as He is, sons of God. That we enjoy the relationship of God as Father. 
that we enjoy the status of ruling with Christ in His kingdom. That we see now that Jesus' miracles of opening the eyes of the blind, opening the ears of the deaf, allowing the lame to walk again, these were all about reversing the effects of sin. It's not about the healings. It's about showing the kind of kingdom that, that Jesus is bringing in, that there will be no sin. No sin all its effects, no sickness, no suffering, no death. A kingdom where everything is perfectly done according to God's goodness. That everyone loves each other selflessly. And this kingdom, Christ's kingdom, is an eternal kingdom. It will last. It will not fade away. It will endure forever. So those who are in this kingdom, what a great kingdom. It's greater than even the greatest prophet this earth could ever produce. But as great as this kingdom is, we see next that the world will reject it. And that's verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, there's some issues here. Like, allow me to just dive in for two, two minutes, okay? Um, because if you read a different version of the Bible, you will see that the kingdom advances forcefully. So there's a few ways of viewing this because there's ambiguity in the Greek here. The two phrases about the kingdom of heaven and the, the violent take it by force or seize it, there's two ways of viewing it. The first could be, like written here, suffer violence, or advances violently. Okay, positive or negative. Likewise, the second statement, uh, the violence sees it, could also be viewed positively in that sense that the kingdom's followers uh, advance it violently, or forcefully advance it as well. And some people would, would take the positive by looking at Luke. Luke 16, verse 16, if you want to look at it. Because about the pronouncement of the kingdom, the same word forces their way into it is used. But I think it's... There's limited use in using Luke to interpret Matthew because Luke, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and here he's not. So I'll largely take the ESVs, uh, which is what we're reading right now, the interpretation here, which is number one. I mean, if there's more questions about this, you can ask in the Q&A, but I won't spend too much time here. Number one, the kingdom of heaven has been acted on violently by violent men. Okay? That, the, the second part here, the violent men, is the only time it's used in the Bible, but in other Greek literature it's used negatively. It's never used positively. So more likely it's this than not for me when I read it. Okay? And, but, and another thing that informs me that this is both negative because it speaks very clearly of John's experience. What happened to John? John was thrown in a Roman prison and, and by, by the Jews he was called a demon. And you see this next week. So the surpassing otherworldly nature of this, this, this nature of this kingdom that doesn't belong to this earth, is rejected by this earth. Because uh, John 3 will tell us, John 3, 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The world cannot take this kingdom, so it rejects it and forcefully tries to kill it. But, but Jesus says, no, they won't succeed. Okay? And that's what he says next in verse 13 to 15. Now, here he refers to the prophets and the law is a short form for the Old Testament. Okay, the law, the writings, and the prophets. But he reverses it a bit. They all prophesy unto John. If you look in your Bibles today, most of our English Bibles will end with, the Old Testament will end with Malachi. Hebrew Scriptures will end with Chronicles. But Jesus is saying, no, those books are not the end of the Old Testament. Old Testament ended with the prophecy of John. That John the Baptist stood in both ages, in old and new. So again, he quotes Malachi, this time in chapter 4. 
Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Before the coming of the Messiah in judgment, Elijah will come. We know that John the Baptist was sent in the spirit and power of Elijah. And we see this reference in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. That the judgment that John was hoping to see, it will come. But John won't see it. Not for John. Because in Matthew chapter 14, John is beheaded by Herod. He dies in the Roman prison. So he did not live to see this judgment, this great and terrible judgment upon sin land a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 27. And we see this judgment fully when Jesus bore on the cross our sins, God's judgment for you and for me. And this comes to our last principle, that Jesus is God who is to come. So let's come back to our expectations, to this most vital question. Who is Jesus? So, first let's dismiss false expectations. Number one, the false expectation number one, that this question, who is Jesus Christ, has no bearing on my life. That Jesus is just someone who lived 2,000 years ago. Maybe said some awesome things, that's why his teachings endured for 2,000 years. But a man, that's all. That's the first false expectation. And we see that the reality is that Jesus is God who has come. He's God who has promised long ago that He will come, and this is His coming. This is His salvation. Don't miss it. There's no excuse. The next second false expectation is that I don't need to be saved from my sin. Surely God can't be that offended by little old me and what I've done. Sure, no one's perfect, but surely God's not that offended, is He? And we look to the cross to see the extents that God has to go through for our forgiveness to, to pay for our sin. And we see that God is serious about sin. He cares because sin is that devious and devastating and, and evil. God is serious about sin. And last but not least, the false expectation is that God doesn't care about me. So what Jesus came 2,000 years ago, God didn't do anything about my situation to save it. And, and we come to the reality that God does care about you. He cares about you enough not to deal with just the trivial things at the expense of what really matters for eternity. That if you're hearing these words now, know that God has already saved you. God cares about your salvation for an eternity. And if that's you today, you, 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 don't know, you only know Jesus as a guy long ago, I invite you to reconsider, to, have, to reset your expectation of who Jesus is, that He is God who has come to save you. Save you from your sin and from its eternal consequences. Save you from belonging to this world that will perish, but rather to belong to Him and His eternal kingdom. To save you to become a child of God. If you didn't have yet today, would you believe in Christ and what He's done for you, that He's died for you, and be united with Him today? And for the rest of us who profess to believe in Christ, will we allow ourselves to be disappointed when God doesn't give us His stuff or change our circumstances? Or will we be bringing our doubts to Him, struggle with Him, that we can wrestle with our expectations in hopefully submitting to God's truth so that we can understand and know Him better through our struggle, not in spite of our struggle? And here I just want to just put a point in here and say I'm very humbled by, by the people that I've known from in this very congregation who are going through severe disappointment, grief, and loss 
but I see that it does not shake their faith in God. That these people to me, I mean, they won't want me to name them, so I won't, okay? But, but to me, they, they are an encouragement. They show me that it is possible to face even things that non-Christians would, would, would not comprehend. Disaster and tragedy and grief that this world cannot comprehend. They can face it with hope because Christ is what we need most. And they have, because they have Christ, as tough as the, as the struggle is, that they are struggling on. And I'm deeply encouraged and I'm honoured to be pastoring this congregation. And if you are today struggling with doubt, your struggle may be more common than you think. I invite you to reach out and, and chat with others and, and maybe receive some, some, some... God doesn't want you to struggle with this alone. He wants you to bring it to Him and bring it with others who love you, can love you and, and pray for you over this. Because Jesus is God who has come to save us as promised. Let's not miss it. Let's not miss it for the sake of our wrong expectations that we've put. And let's attune our expectations to the reality God has put for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to save us from our sin. That you've saved us in such a magnificent way. Help us to not take for granted all that you've done for us. And maybe some of us here are hurting, are in doubt, are grieving. Father, I pray and ask, O oh Lord, that um, you will bring them to you through your word, through your people, through your presence, O oh Lord, that we will learn to, to, to point each other towards you. Help us to expect rightly of how you expect to work in our lives and help us not to be swayed by this world. We can only do so by the strength that you give us. So we ask this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.